0: If you have your Bibles, welcome you to grab them. Uh, Turn to Luke chapter 18. Uh, We're going to be looking at verses 18 to 30 this morning. Um, It's a very well-known story, rich young ruler. So as you're flipping there, um, uh, one of the questions that I saw this week as I was was preparing for the sermon is really the first question that the the rich young ruler asks, which is, uh, what must I do to be saved? What must I do to inherit eternal life? And the question of what must I do to inherit eternal life made me think, are there actually people who, who create wills that have strings attached, that, that, that they would actually hold back money or hold back what they have to offer only if their, their kids or their, their heirs would jump through different hoops, fulfill certain things. And so I did what everybody does, and I went to Google, and I just searched, are there any crazy, ridiculous wills out there? It turns out there's a lot. turns out there's a man named Henry Budd, uh, who uh, had a a good chunk of money a few, uh, I think it was 80 years ago. He had $200,000 that he was going to leave to his two sons. He put it in a trust fund and said, in his will, the only way that my sons can access this money is if they promise to never grow facial hair. Cause that's a normal thing to make your kids do for money. Now, uh, that one wasn't as bad, though, as a father who had a very big inheritance to give his daughter. He put it in trust that she could only touch it so often, and the only way that she was allowed to get funds from the trust is if she stayed under a certain weight, <sighs> controlling to the end. What a father, right? Is that what God is like? Is that the inheritance that that we have to jump through and earn? Or I did find a story of a a man from Portugal. He was uh, an older man, wasn't married, no kids, no surviving family, and he had this inheritance to, to pass on and he didn't know what to do with it or where to send it. And so what he did is he picked up a phone book and he flipped through the phone book and at random he chose 70 names to be written in his will. Could you imagine being one of those 70 people who got a phone call from the executor of the will saying, this man that you've never met has left you money. You don't need to do anything. You, you, you just need to come and pick up the check. It's God like that. I mean, this morning, what I, what I want us to see, and what I want us to look at is there is an inheritance, eternal life, And it's right there for us. But what does God require us to do to get it? Do we have to earn it and jump through hoops? Do we have to work ourselves into the will? Or is it by grace alone? And what I hope that if you get nothing else out of this whole morning, what I hope that you would get is that salvation is possible only with God. And we inherit it by faith. Salvation is possible with God, and we inherit it by faith. Would you pray with me, and then would we read this passage, jump in, and see how this all makes sense for us, and how we should respond today. So Jesus, I'm so thankful that you have gathered us to this place, that you have drawn us to, your, to this building to be your church, gathered And that as we sit under the teaching of your word, as we humble ourselves and hear what you say through scripture, God, I pray that we would see how hopeless it is for us to try and earn our way into the kingdom. How hopeless it is for us to try and save ourselves through works, through outward appearance. I pray that we would see that you have done the work, that you have accomplished the task that we could never do, and that you extend this welcome by faith, that you invite us into your kingdom and that we can accept. God, would our hearts be humbled, would our minds be open, would your spirit be working in us to stir up places where we are not believing this, we're not living this, and God, areas where we need to repent and turn and follow you. God, I pray that you'd be with us this morning and that you would draw us closer to your heart. We pray this in your name, Jesus. Amen. Okay, Luke chapter 18, 18 to 30 says this, and a ruler asked him, good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus said to him, what do you call me good? No one is good but God alone. You know the commandments. Do not commit adultery. Do not murder. Do not steal. Do not bear false witness. Honor your father and your mother. He said, all these I've kept since my youth. When Jesus heard this, he said to him, "'One thing you still lack, sell all that you have, "'distribute it to the poor, "'and you will have treasure in heaven, "'and come, follow me.'" When he heard these things, he became very sad, for he was extremely rich. Jesus, seeing that he had become sad, said, "'How difficult it is for those who have have wealth "'to enter the kingdom of God. "'For it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle "'than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God.'" Those who heard it said, then who can be saved? But he said, what's impossible with man is possible with God. And Peter said, see, we've left our homes and followed you. And he said to them, truly, I say to you, there is no one who has left house or wife or brothers or parents or children for the sake of the kingdom of God who will not receive many times more in this time and in the age to come eternal life. One caveat as we jump into this passage, um, there is too much in here to preach in one 35-minute time slot. Uh, David and I were joking this week that this is like a three, four-week study if you just want to go through and, and kind of uncover all the beauty of what God has revealed in here. So I'm, I'm, I'm sorry if I don't touch on things that you see or things that you are, are feeling impressed by God about. I hope that you're able to study it this week. I'd love to even talk to you about the many things uh, that this passage has. But I think that the most important thing we can do is look at the question that the rich young ruler asks. What must I do to inherit the kingdom of God? What must I do to inherit eternal life? And then look at Jesus' answer. It's impossible for man. It's possible with God. So that's gonna be our, our structure for today. It's impossible for, for men. It's possible for God. And our response is one of faith. Now, the the reason that this is such an important question, too, and I I think why we have to focus on it, is this isn't the first time this question has even been asked in the Gospel of Luke. This is the second time, and funny enough, the second time that I've gotten to preach on it. I did the first one, and now this one. Don't know how that happened. The first time, the the question is posed not from an honest seeker, but from a lawyer who is looking to put Jesus to the test. He's wanting to find a way to stump him. And so even his question is just a hair different. Whereas the rich young ruler says, what must I do to inherit eternal life? The, the lawyer says, what shall I do? See, the assumption that the lawyer has is that his resume speaks for itself. He's already in the kingdom. He, he knows he's arrived. And so this is a test for Jesus, not for him. in, in his arrogance in, in his boasting, in his thinking that he has built himself up into the kingdom, he misses the point of the question altogether. But where the lawyer fails, it seems like the rich young ruler gets it. See, instead of the rich young ruler coming and thinking that he is, he is just looking for a pat on the back and to be justified, to, to, to be made to look good. The rich young ruler comes, and the question he asks almost seems like he's not really sure that all of the things that he's been hanging his hat on, all of the resume points that he has, are really enough. Good good teacher. What must I do to inherit eternal life? The interesting thing is, it's not just the lawyer and it's not just the rich young ruler who asks these questions. This is a question that actually everybody, I think, asks at some point in their life. God has put eternity on all of our hearts. There is a knowledge that there is something more than what this life has to offer, more than what we can see and taste and touch and feel. There's something after this life. And we see in in the world around us, many people have tried to answer this question in the the same way that the rich young ruler is trying to answer it. What do I have to do? What what works do I have to put forward to make sure I get that? In Islam, it's the five pillars. You have to fast, you have to pray, you have to give, you have to make the pilgrimage to the Hajj, and you have to... uh, Proclaim your faith in, in Muhammad as the prophet of God alone, uh, that, that, that he is Allah's prophet. That, that, that's salvation. If you do these things and you consistently do them, that's salvation. That, that, that assures that you're on the right page. If you're a, a Buddhist, it's the elimination of desire. If we can get to the place where we no longer want anything, then we'll be free from this world and we can enter into peace. We, we, we can have all that we've ever wanted. If you're a Hindu, the the, the goal is perfection through reincarnation. That no matter how many lives you need to go through, you have to be better and better and better to finally cease to exist in this world and you're free from this sinful world. Now the problem is obviously if you're bad, you go backwards and and you have a worse life in the next one. But the question is always the same. What do we have to do to get eternal life? It's a question that we should all be asking. The rich young ruler had, like I said, quite the, quite the resume, quite the, the things to point to that he was someone that you would expect would be in the kingdom. His resume was this. Look, Jesus, I fulfilled the law my whole life since I was a youth. Jesus, look, I'm a, I'm a leader in my community Look, like I'm wealthy. I'm I'm extremely wealthy. And I'm a son of Abraham. I'm of the right line, the right lineage. I have the right the right great 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 great, great grandfather. Of course I'm going to be in right. What else what else could I do? But here's the thing, Jesus shows us that it's it's not enough. Both in the way that he fulfills the law in the way that he's relying on wealth, or the way that he's actually relying on his own genealogy. Jesus said to him, you know the commandments. Do not commit adultery, do not murder, do not steal, do not bear false witness, honor your father and your mother. All these I've kept from my youth, which of course is a lie. Romans 3.10 tells us, none is righteous, no, not one. No one understands, no one seeks God. Or Ecclesiastes 7.20, surely there is not a righteous man on earth who does good and never sins. It is clear. But Jesus pokes the hole so clearly for himself where he says, take all that you have, sell it. Distribute it to the poor, you'll have treasure in heaven, and come follow me. The man goes away sad because he had had extreme wealth, he had excess. He, he had so much that, that he didn't know what to do with it. But that wealth had become the idol, the thing that he loved most. He had broken the first commandment that he should have no other gods, no other idols in his life. There was something that he loved more than God. But more than that, he can't actually claim that his wealth is a thing that is, is going to save him. We see throughout scripture that there are lots of wealthy people who are both righteous and unrighteous. Throughout the, the prophets, both the, the major prophets and the minor prophets, there's so many times where the leaders, the wealthy, the people who are in positions of power and control, they're not blessed by God because they're righteous people. This is what Jeremiah 12:1 says. Righteous are you, O Lord, when I complain to you. Yet I would plead my case before you. Why, why does the way of the wicked prosper? Why do all the treacherous thrive. He can't hang his hat on the law, can't hang his hat on his position or his wealth, but can he still hang his hat on the genealogy? I mean, that's how we inherit wealth. That's how we inherit anything, right? Well, Romans 6, or sorry, Romans 9, 6 to 8 says this, not all who are descended from Israel belong to Israel. Not all are children of Abraham because they are his offspring, but through Isaac your offspring shall be named. This means that it is not the children of the flesh who are the children of God, but the children of the promise are counted as offspring. Nothing that he brought in his resume, none of the boxes that he thought he had ticked off give him any assurance. And, and Jesus makes sure of it. What do we think we bring to the table? You know, what is it that, that we look to to provide assurance that we've done enough, that we've done the right things in the right way, enough of it. What are we trusting in for eternal life, for salvation, for the forgiveness of our sins? Are we trusting in our good lives, our Christian heritage, Are we we trusting in the the outward righteousness that people see? Are we trying to fool ourselves even into thinking that we're good enough? Are we stuck working for the impossible, trusting that all these things that we have done will give us access to the kingdom of God? How are we trusting our own works to save? What we're supposed to see, what we're supposed to be hit with is that it's impossible. And, and, and Jesus, what he does is, is he, changes, he changes the emphasis a little bit too. You know, at first, the disciples, they're, they're shocked at this, this person not being saved. And, and Jesus says, well, very clearly, how difficult it is for those with wealth to enter the kingdom of God. It's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. And those who heard it said, well, then who can be saved? Who? Not not just what kind of rich person, but what person? He said it's impossible with men. It's possible with God. What we're supposed to see isn't just that it's those wealthy people or those leaders or those people who look good, that they're going to have a harder time entering the kingdom. What we're supposed to see is that it's impossible for all of us. Wealth is just a, a big barrier for those people. It can become that idol, that thing that they cling to, that they trust in, that they, they want to provide. But it's impossible for all of us, for any of us, to enter the kingdom of God on our own works. Salvation is impossible with man. The second thing we see is salvation is possible with God. If you love the Bible, you love reading it, and you love seeing how, how God is working in his providence, in his sovereignty, he is drawing things together that, that are outside of human control and human will. It, it has to be that way. You know, He's the one who has created everything out of nothing. He's the one who, is, who has done the impossible, who has done miracles. And when we read the Old Testament, we're supposed to see these things and not go how, how, how good that is that, that happened to that person. We're supposed to see how great of a God that can do the impossible in situations that require it. We're supposed to see it written throughout. Specifically, talking about the the, the heritage or the the genealogies that come through Abraham, we're supposed to see, even in that story, that it's all by faith. It's not by works. There's nothing that Abraham brings to the table. When we first meet Abraham, he is an idolater. He is worshiping false gods. He doesn't come to God with a plan to say, Look, I'm going to leave everything behind. I'm gonna leave my family, I'm gonna leave my idols, I'm gonna leave everything I know, and I'm gonna go where you want me to go, and then you're gonna do this stuff for me. It's God who calls him. It's God who presents himself to Abraham and says in Genesis 12:1 to 3: Leave the land that you live in, leave your family, leave everything behind, and come and go to the land that I will show you. Not the land that I have showed you, the land that I will show you. You have to walk in faith. Now I'm going to make you a great nation. I'm going to bless those who bless you. I'm going to curse those who curse you. You're going to be a blessing to the whole world through your offspring. Now that's a great promise, but it still required faith. It still required Abraham to leave. That wasn't work to earn. That was that was faith in action. And even the fact that he was given this promise is, is great, but we know the story of Abraham and Isaac. They're, they're old and they don't have a kid. How, how is God going to bring land, seed, and blessing? Give us the promised land. Give us more kids than there are stars in the heavens or sand on the seashores. How is God going to do that? Plus, bless us abundantly when we don't even have an heir to pass it down to. Like right now, it, it, it ends here. You know, Abraham's plan was to actually give it to Elimelech, his his servant, his chief servant. That was his plan. I don't have an heir. I guess I have to give it to one of my servants. Sarah's plan, which we know, was to give Abraham Hagar, her servant. If God hasn't given us the promise yet, maybe we should do it. And all we see every single time that, that Abraham and Sarah make a plan without it being faith and being God calling them to do something, it always ends bad. Every time. Whether it's with, whether it was with Ishmael and, and the infighting, the two nations that will be against each other for generation after generation, the, the, the chaos in the camp between these two brothers, between Hagar and Sarah, it's written throughout the story. Whether it's when uh, Abraham and Sarah, there's a famine and God is, is trying to see how are you going to respond? How are you going to act? Are you going to trust me that I will fulfill my promises even when it doesn't look like it? And they go down into Egypt and, and you know, Abraham and Sarah come up with this bright idea yet again. Hey, you're going to be my sister. I'm going to be your brother. If, if anybody wants you as your wife, then they won't kill me and take you. And we see God do the impossible. He keeps Sarah from being taken and slept with so that he could preserve the promise just between Abraham and Sarah. And not only that, but they're sent away blessed. You couldn't write that into a script. It's impossible. Why would Pharaoh, this powerful person, give away all this stuff to this this random nomad? And of course, we know he doesn't just do it once. It happens with Abimelech just a few chapters later where, again, there's a famine. They go down into the land of the Philistines to take some refuge, to find food, And they do the same thing. Sarah, be my sister. I'm going to be your brother. It worked so well the last time. (laughs) And we see God do the impossible yet again in a dream. Show up to Abimelech and keep the promise from being ruined. Not Abraham's work, not Sarah's work. God's work. The providence of Isaac that in their old age, Past the years of being able to give birth, uh, give birth, past the years of thinking that this would happen naturally, it had to be that way because it had to be impossible. There had to be no doubt in our minds as we read through Scripture that salvation is a work of God alone. No doubts. And we see it throughout Scripture, all the way to, to Moses in the Exodus. Who would have thought that a bunch of slaves? would plunder a superpower without ever lifting a sword. No riots, no deaths, just left. That at the Red Sea, it would part and they would walk on dry land. That the army that pursued them would be killed and demolished without a single soldier. That their clothing would not wear out for the 40 years they wandered in the desert, that quail and manna from heaven would come and fill them, that water would come from rocks. It's impossible. It's only because of God. That's what we're supposed to see all throughout the Old Testament and even into the New Testament. Zechariah is in the temple. He is an old man. His wife, Elizabeth, is barren. They look like they are the kind of people who who are doing good things, but God must not love them because they're barren. And in the temple, as he's giving the sacrifices, the incense, the angel meets him and tells him, you're going to have a son. It's going to be a miracle. It's going to be only explained by God. And because you doubted me, you're going to be deaf until he's born. Just again, show people who's in control, who's providing. And the son of yours isn't just going to be any son. He is going to prepare the way for the Messiah. He's going to prepare the hearts and the minds and call fathers and sons to each other to repentance and they'll be ready for Jesus to come and die. And of course, Jesus. What could be more miraculous than a virgin birth? Who could try to explain that away? What's more miraculous than God himself humbling himself and taking the form of a human? Becoming fully God, fully man. That he would live a perfect, sinless life, obedient to his father, to the cross. That he would willingly go and suffer. To be the sacrifice that was lifted up on the tree. So that he could become the curse that we are. That he could take sin and he could deal with it. That he would actually appease, that he would take away, he would turn the wrath of God away from us and put it on himself. And that through his death and through his resurrection, we would, maintain, we would actually get to have relationship with the Father, both now and for eternity. It's impossible. That's the point. Who then can be saved? What's impossible with man is possible with God. That's the point. If you leave with nothing else, like we have to hold on to that truth because... As we do life and as we follow Jesus, it's so easy sometimes to think that now we've done it. One of the the fallacies that I've had to talk through with young adults and with with many Christians is this belief that I was a sinner, I was at zero and and Jesus saved me and I came up to 50 and now I need to take it the rest of the way to 100 to be saved. You You know, of course Jesus did this, but now I have to do the rest, right? I mean, I have to work up my salvation with fear and trembling, it's like you're missing it. That We don't work to be saved. It's our faith in Jesus that causes us to act. Not to be saved, but to show what God has done for us. It's like baptism. Baptism doesn't save us. Baptism is an outward sign of an inward change. It reveals what God has already done for us. Our works don't save. They reveal the salvation that God has given us. Do you ever doubt that someone like you could be saved? And, and like, please, like, don't, don't give the, the Christian pat answer of, oh, of course I can be saved. Like, do, you, do you sometimes, when you look at your life, the ways that you've rebelled, the ways that you've sinned, the ways that your heart is filled with wickedness, do you sometimes doubt that you could be saved? Maybe there's a friend, a family member who's, who's done too much, gone too far, ran too far away from the grace of God for him to save them. Do you despair that heaven seems unattainable because of sin? Take heart. What's impossible for man is possible for God. God is not too small to save, too weak to stretch out his hand and grab us from the brink of hell. He is capable of doing all things, especially salvation. It's impossible for us to be saved by ourselves. It's only possible with God. Now, what do we do? There still feels like there's some tension here. It can't just be like the the, the will where there's 70 names written and they find it one day, they they got it. There still has to be something, right? Even in our passage itself, it feels like as much as Jesus is calling this man to, to trust him by faith it still feels like he has to do something. I mean, this is what Jesus says to him. One thing you still lack. Sell all that you have. Distribute it to the poor, and you'll have treasure in heaven and come follow me. Jesus, that seems like three things. And, and, And that seems like you're putting requirements on me that I have to do something so that I can be saved. So what is it? Is it faith alone, by grace alone, or do we still have do we still have to do something? Do we still have to kick the rock just off the edge? Why is the ruler unable to enter the kingdom while the disciples are given this encouragement, even this assurance? See, we've left our homes. We've done this work, Jesus. We followed you. He said to them, truly I say to you, there's there's no one who's left house or wife or brothers or parents or children for the sake of the kingdom of God who will not receive many times more in this time and the age to come eternal life. Jesus, what are you saying? Well, one tried to enter the kingdom by their works. Right, The, the ruler wanted to enter on his own resume, whereas the disciples, They followed Jesus by faith and they're leaving everything behind. Wasn't a work to be saved. They saw a treasure in Jesus that was greater than anything this world had to offer. What Jesus is trying to do with the rich young ruler is not give him work to do. He's trying to help him let go. Let go of the things that don't save, that, that, that don't satisfy, that don't provide eternal life and cling fully to him. It's a little crazy, but this rich young ruler, when he, when he looks at Jesus and he says, good teacher. Well, Jesus picks up on this and he says, why do you call me good? Only God is good. Is this rich young ruler looking at Jesus in the eyes and saying, I know you're the savior. I know you're the Messiah. God, help me. What do I have to do to inherit eternal life? Imagine having the giver of life staring at you in the eyes. And you're still trying to hold on to something that this earth offers. There's a, a, a movie that came out, I think it was last year, called uh, Gold. Uh, Zach Efron stars in it. Um, I watched the trailer and I thought, that's enough. I don't need to watch the whole thing. Uh, the, the premise of the movie is quite simple. Uh, he's on his way to uh, this new job, this, this uh, heavy labor job that he is hoping that will provide him his, his way in life. And on the way out to this job, he's, he's being driven and the car breaks down. And as the car breaks down, uh, Zac Ephron's uh, character, Virgil, he, he stumbles on this gigantic piece of gold. I mean, it's not just big, it's, it's humongous. As he starts to unearth it and as they, they dig around it, they realize that it's not just a small piece of gold, it's, it's bigger than the truck that they have. And they know, they, they know this is the thing that is going to provide us. For life. I mean, we're set. If we can get this out of the ground, we can get it to town, we can sell it, we'll never work a day in our life. We will have every need met. There'll there'll be nothing we lack. And the two of them are rejoicing until they realize, well, they can't get it out of the ground themselves right here, right now. Who's going to go back to town? Who's going to get the excavator? Who's going to get it so that we can get this thing out to sell it? And of course, right away, you, you watch their hearts turn against each other. This, this gold opportunity that is going to provide for everything is suddenly now something that has to be fought over and protected. So Virgil decides that he's going to stay with it. You know, he doesn't know where to go in town. He doesn't know what to buy. He doesn't know all that stuff. So, so the other guy, you go, I'm going to stay right here by the gold and protect it. And what you watch over the course of the video is you watch him fall further and further in love with the gold and less and less in love with his own life. He, he, he runs out of water. He runs out of food. He gets a terrible sunburn as he's out exposed in the middle of this desert. He tries hiding out from a, a sandstorm that destroys everything. The, the last remaining water that he does have, he spills it while he's trying to get food. As he's hiding one day from the sun, he sees a, a woman approaching and he h- tries to hide from her so that she won't know what he's doing. Instead of accepting her help, He ends up killing her. A few days later, as he's at the end of his life, he's murdered, he's lied, he's relied on this piece of gold in the ground for hope. And you watch him slip further and further, closer to death. Until finally, he's attacked by a bunch of wild dogs, he's ripped apart, and that's the end of the movie, basically. It's a a golden movie, yeah. The point being why would you hold on to this this thing in the ground that can do nothing for you? There was even a car that drove by that he could have flagged down, but his hope was in the rock. The the, the hope was in the ground. This thing that if he could just get it out, if he could just bring it with him, he he could have the best life. But he chose death instead of life. He he chose to cling to something of this earth rather than choose to go and seek the help that he needed. And the same is true with us. There's only room in our hands and our hearts for one treasure, for one thing that can satisfy and fulfill, that can save. There's only room for one thing that we can desire, that we can trust in. There's only one inheritance that we should be looking for. Ephesians 2, 8-9 says this, it's by grace that you have been saved through faith and this is not your own doing, it's a gift of God, not a result of works that no one may boast. We're supposed to see so clearly that we do nothing, we bring nothing. It is God by his spirit who allows us to respond to the mercy he's extended, the grace that he has given us. It's the spirit who regenerates our hearts to see our sinful position in life, to see the things that we have clung to and loved and turn away from them and trust in Jesus. And that's not a work, that's faith. That's trusting in the thing that we cannot see that is gonna save and is gonna take care of our position. And it's written all throughout Luke. Jesus is very clear that this is this is how we come to him and how we are saved. Luke 5.20 says, When he saw their faith, he said, Man, your sins are forgiven you. Luke 7.50, And he said to the woman, Your faith has saved you. Go in peace. Luke 8.48, And he said to her, Daughter, your faith has made you well. Go in peace. Luke 17.19, He said to him, Rise and go on your way. Your faith has made you well. Luke 18.42 and Jesus said to him, recover your sight. Your faith has made you well. What must we do to be saved? Trust in the finished work of Jesus. Let go of every other thing that we're trusting in, that we're holding on to. Every work and effort, every idol and love has to be just gone. There's only room in our hands for one. It has to be God. God. I mean, this passage makes it so clear we can't serve both God and and money. There's so many things that we can trust in. What must we do to be saved? We put our faith in Jesus, his person and his work. We cling to him as Lord and Savior, our greatest treasure. Like the parable of the treasure hidden in the field or the the pearl of great great price, we sell everything we have. We get rid of everything to cling on to the one thing. That's the call that Jesus has for us today. The story is placed in this position that it's actually kind of a a building to a climax. See, a few weeks ago, we met the, the widow, the persistent widow who knew she needed help from the judge. That should be us too. That we faithfully pursue God to save us. Like the tax collector who stood at the back and beat his breast. He didn't look up, he just kept his head down and he said, have mercy on me, a sinner. We have to humble ourselves before God. And like the children from last week, who Jesus says, truly I say to you, whoever does not receive the kingdom of God like a child will not enter it. We need to be like dependent children who know that God is the only one who offers us anything. And none of that is work, that is all faith that is trusting in God alone to save us. Have you heard the call of God to leave everything behind and follow him? Maybe it was a long time ago. Maybe it was recently. Maybe it was even today. Have you felt the tug to give up those relationships, the the, the money, the stuff, the addictions, the lesser loves, and instead give your whole heart to Jesus? To trust that he loves you, gave his life on the cross to give you forgiveness of your sins, to remove the wrath of God and to give you an inheritance of eternal life, of salvation, of being with Jesus both now and forever. This great treasure that we have been given that has been placed in front of us is ours to accept by faith. Today, don't harden your hearts and hold on to this world or trust in your own works to save. Humble yourself. Come to Jesus dependently, clinging to him alone by faith. Would you pray with me that we would do that today? Jesus, how easy it is for sin to cloud our judgment and to make us believe that we have done enough. God, that we are righteous or that we are good enough, that we have done something to earn your grace or your favor, your forgiveness, your love. But God, it's not true. Naturally, we're enemies. We're far from you. We're children of wrath. And yet, because of what your son has done, God, we go from being beggars to being part of the inheritance of everything. We go from being enemies to being friends. We go, God, from being people who are going to inherit an eternity apart from you in hell, being punished for our sins justly, to being your children, dearly loved, accepted, and welcomed. God, would you help us to cling to you alone? Would you help us to cling to the truth? that it's only through Jesus we're saved. Would we all call on his name and trust in him alone for our salvation? God, work in our hearts and help us to do that, not just once, but every single day. Stir our hearts to love you anew today. We pray in your name, Jesus. Amen.